You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. Welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from Doctors Without Borders. In today's episode, we're going to be hearing about one doctor's fight against a forgotten disease and the devastating effects it's having on people's health in Uzbekistan. Tuberculosis is often thought of as a disease of the past, but a recent resurgence and the spread of drug-resistant forms makes it very much an issue of the present. Today, a staggering one-third of the world's population is infected with TB. While the vast majority of people infected never develop symptoms, around 9 million people develop active TB, and 1.5 million people die from the disease each year. We're currently seeing an alarming rise in cases of drug-resistant and multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis, strains of the disease that don't respond to first-line drugs. Uzbekistan, a landlocked and populous country in Central Asia, has particularly high levels of drug-resistant TB. Access to diagnosis and good quality care is limited in the country, and the vast majority of people with drug-resistant TB remain untreated. In 2013, Emily Wise, an infectious diseases doctor from London, travelled to Uzbekistan for her first MSF mission. The following is a heartbreaking account from Emily of one of the many young patients she treated during her mission in the Karakulpakstan region of Uzbekistan. For anyone that's new to the podcast, we'll be talking with Emily after hearing her story, so make sure to keep listening. This is a true story, and the words are read by actor Aspen Rice. My favourite patient lies dying in my arms. All of the sentiment expressed and my choice of terminology in the above sentence are painfully contrary to the place where all of my prior medical training is supposed to have brought me. The last 13 years of my life have been dedicated towards turning me into a finely tuned and rational life-saving machine. I am not supposed to form emotional attachments to my patients or hold them passively and powerless while they die. I'm supposed to secure their airways, stabilise their blood pressures and attach them to life support machines. But this is the reality in which I find myself. My favourite patient lies dying in my arms. Exactly one month ago, I wrote about Gulzabira, a 28-year-old former nurse weighing just 36 kilograms with chronic, probable, extensively drug-resistant tuberculosis, or XDR-TB. He was our first to start on drug-resistant treatment here in Shumani. Given her frailty and extent of her disease, I took to visiting her regularly at her home, checking she was okay and tolerating the drugs, maybe more often than clinically necessary. Each time we'd be greeted by her big grin. Her mother would grab my hands and beam at me with smiling eyes. We had come to help her daughter, to whom she was devoted. On our last visit, I asked my translator, Yezmarat, to take my photo with Gulzabira. My arm wrapped round her, her sweetly smiling at the camera. As we left her house, I said to Yezmarat, 
As a doctor, I'm really not allowed to have favourites. But if I was, she would be it. Now it's Tuesday morning, 7.30am, and I'm called by Gulzabira's general practitioner in a panic. Please can we come, there's something wrong. I call my Ministry of Health counterpart, Dr. Tlubigan, and he leaves immediately for her house in an ambulance to retrieve her while I drive to the district. We meet at his recently evacuated, empty TB inpatient department, or IPD. As soon as I look through the back doors of the ambulance, it is obvious the situation is desperate. We carry her inside. She is drawing 50 breaths a minute and unable to speak. Her arms flail aimlessly and her chest is full of crackles on osculation with my stethoscope. Her eyes roll back and she loses consciousness. Her mother spits on her face to try and revive her. I hold up her chest x-ray Tlubigan had arranged en route. No pneumothorax, but the lung fields are obliterated by white fluffy shadows. She is in acute respiratory distress syndrome. She is effectively drowning. I bark a shopping list of drugs and equipment I need at the IPD nurse. She looks at me blankly, then returns from the drug cupboard with one 500 milliliter bag of fluid. TB drugs and empty beds is really all they have. And in Karakal, Pakistan, MSF is running an ambulatory outpatient-based TB programme, and so we are really not equipped to care for such cases. At this point in a UK A&E resuscitation room, I would be in my element. I would feel in total control, issuing orders to nurses and juniors who speak the same language as me and who have had the same training, running tests, inserting lines, getting the patient intubated. But now, without the tools of my trade to keep my hands occupied, they feel horribly empty. And so I hold on to Gulzabira's left hand, stroke back the hair from her forehead with my other hand, and whisper lies to her that she will be all right. I turn to Tlubigan and tell him what he already knows, that if we stay here, she'll be dead in the next 15 minutes. I ask him to take us to the best and nearest clinical area with oxygen. We drive her to the district's main hospital and bundle her in. The two attending doctors rightly start protesting at our arrival. With our trademark respirator masks, we are universally recognised as the TB doctors and our carried goods are highly infectious. But we have no time to negotiate. We pull Gulzabira into a side room, close the door, open the windows and snap masks onto the faces of the doctors and nurses and I tell them that we can debate infection control matters later. I begin pleading with the hospital staff to bring whatever equipment they have. But not only is language a barrier, I'm speaking quickly in a foreign language using many technical terms with which my translator is not familiar, but I'm also trying to practice a medicine very alien to this hospital. At home, I've run such drills thousands of times with similarly sick patients to the extent I could do them with my eyes closed. Now it feels like I'm trying to run through treacle. 
Why am I asking them for these drugs and equipment? This is not how they do things. They have their own very different protocols. It's as if my hands are tied behind my back. It makes me feel physically sick to my stomach. We managed to locate an oxygen saturation monitor and put it on her finger. It reads 40%. Anything less than around 88% is incompatible with the brain receiving enough oxygen to survive. We locate a concentrator that can deliver a pitiful five litres of oxygen a minute and Plebergen and I start bagging her furiously. Momentarily, Galzabira's oxygen saturations hit 70% and she regains consciousness and she cries out, but then they rapidly plummet again. I ask for broad-spectrum antibiotics in case there is any superimposed pneumonia, high-dose steroids in case there's any inflammatory process to be suppressed, and fruzamide as a desperate attempt to dry out her lungs. But I know it's futile. Since I qualified as a doctor, I have had a recurrent dream I have never before told anyone, probably because I am keenly aware of the underlying neurosis it reveals. It is always a variation on the same theme. I am in a public, non-clinical place and I witness a loved one suffer a cardiac arrest. I try to run to them but find my legs are paralysed. I try to touch them, but I cannot move my arms. I try to shout out for help or phone an ambulance, but no noise comes out my mouth. And then I wake, relieved that I was only dreaming. Now, standing by Gulzabira, I am living out my dream. We have done the hopeless basics, and anything more sophisticated is beyond our capacity. Her parents stand similarly helpless, in the corridor, silently sobbing. For a fleeting nanosecond, an instinctive desire rises in my belly, something I never ever imagined I could wish for as a doctor. I wish that she would just die to end the ordeal. Gulzabira starts to move her arms in a stereotypical fashion we call decerebrate posturing, which indicates severe hypoxic brain damage. Well, what was I expecting? I signed up to MSF, didn't I? Did I really think I wasn't going to be faced with the scenario? Did I really think it was all going to be plain sailing, or like at home in my UK tertiary referral hospital intensive care unit? This is the reality of medical care in these settings. Well, they wouldn't call us Doctors Without Borders. They would call us Doctors, thanks for showing up, but you really needn't have bothered, we've got it covered. In fact, for many of my MSF colleagues and other more emergency projects, similar scenes will be a daily occurrence. I have seen enough footage of lonely MSF doctors hanging up hopeless drips for unconscious, skeletal, near-corpses in refugee camps. I'm lucky to have made it five months here without a previous similar episode. In the West, we never see such cases of chronic, long-standing tuberculosis, 
so TB patients tend to sail through treatment. It is an eminently curable condition. But Klubergen tells me he is familiar with such cases, as chronic TB is all too common in Karakal, Pakistan. After so many years of being diseased, sometimes the lungs just cannot cope anymore and decompensate, and these patients can never be saved. Driving home from the field that evening, I look on my phone at the picture of me with my arm around my dead friend, and I realise I have lost any confidence in my ability to help anyone. Any confidence I have in this programme any desire to be here in this country and that I am a terrible and useless doctor. But as the cliched old saying goes, the darkest hour of all is the hour before the dawn. Every death from TB is avoidable. Every death from TB is not due to a medical reason. Forget for a second about the technical nitty-gritty detail of tissue necrosis and compromised gas exchange. In this modern age, all deaths from TB boil down to a lack of commitment from the international political community and the pharmaceutical industry to address this disease. I cannot pretend I can draw any comfort from Gold Zabira's death but maybe her story will spur you to join MSF in its call for universal access to good TB treatments. It's still not yet too late for hundreds of thousands of other TB patients. Since writing that story in May 2013, Emily has returned to work in London. We got her into the studio to find out a bit more about her time in Uzbekistan and the impact it's had on her life and career. So Emily, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Um, we uh, were listening to that, that story almost three years, almost the day after Gulzabira died. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you feel looking back on that with, with three years in between? It still feels very raw, actually. I think maybe in part because coming back and reintegrating within uh, the NHS and working back in the UK, um, how futile her death still seems, how we don't, you know, we don't see unnecessary TB deaths here. What a waste it is, of uh, an unnecessary waste of a, a young life. So it um, it still feels pretty, pretty raw. Mm. Um and um, desperately unfortunate, yeah. Could you could you tell us a bit more about why in the blog post you say that she's your she was your favourite patient? Yeah, uh, that's uh, not a natural thing for, <laughs> as a doctor. I guess when you're when you're out uh, in the field as an MSF doctor, it's it's such a different experience from working, uh, for example, somewhere like here in the NHS because. Um, it feels so much more personal. You're there because you've been really felt compelled and, and driven to go there and because all the work you do is often so, in a way, sort of personally led, like you wake up in the morning and you, you sort of 
decide your agenda to some extent, where you're going to go, who you're going to try and treat that day. And then because you're often the only healthcare access that, that patients have, it, uh, they're often in such desperate situations that uh, uh, it just feels a lot more uh, personal um, and less uh, sort of organised from afar. And then often that, you know, they, they're young people that you can relate to, you know, working in the UK, you, your patients will cl- classically be sort of older um they, they've had good innings often and they they're, might be debilitated by chronic diseases, which to an extent have been self-induced, maybe from slightly excessive lifestyles. Whereas um, where I was, it was young people who, who had their whole lives ahead of them, everything to hope for. She was a healthcare worker herself, as many of our patients were, because there was no adequate infection control in place. Um, so it, it, it did often feel a, a bit too close to, to home, yeah. Also in that story, you, you talk about very eloquently talk about having your hands sort of figuratively tied behind yeah, your back yeah. by the by the treatment options and the uh, and the and the technology there um how, how does it compare being a doctor in Uzbekistan oh, it, yeah I mean uh it's, it's obviously quite a negative post in, in many ways and I don't want to distract too much from from the amazing work that Medicine Sans Frontier is is doing in Uzbekistan and similar countries you know I did. I did find the work there incredibly fulfilling. It's the best thing I ever, I ever did. I definitely came back with that overriding sense. Um, but yes, there were there were certainly times where we just didn't have the capacity. We didn't have the facilities to do what uh, what we desperately wanted to be able to do. And it's it's a very strange feeling as a doc. You almost sort of you can get sort of a bit a bit of a sort of a Jedi like complex that you feel that you can you can control all as a doctor and um, you know as long as you've got the right tools and, and fellow staff to hands you can you can literally pull someone back from the brink and not being able to do that is a is a, a horrible, horrible haunting feeling, yeah. Could you tell us a bit about how it felt moving yeah. from the UK to Uzbekistan for the first time? Oh, it was a really interesting place to go. It was somewhere I never envisaged that I would be sent. I had quite a lot of experience of being in East Africa prior to um, to joining the MSF pool and um, with a, quite a lot of experience in neglected tropical diseases such as sleeping sickness. So that's you know, I love East Africa. That's where I was expecting uh, to be sent. Um, so it was a real surprise to to uh, to be asked to go to Uzbekistan. I had to check check on the map where it was. Um, uh, but I'm so, I'm so glad they did send me there because um, it's not an obvious country to travel to. I don't imagine I ever would have gone there otherwise. Um, and the people were, again, sorry, a bit of a, a cliche, but the people were uh, just brilliant. That's what made it in a big part the national staff you know you spend a lot of time with the national staff particularly our sort of assistant translators um and they're just brilliant welcoming warm fun people great sense of humor um a really interesting country an amazing culture obviously going through extremely uh difficult times but uh uh, humans are amazingly resilient and um on the whole humans are good people and you see you see the best in uh, the best in people come out in challenging situations. Uh, very challenging climate. My goodness, <laughs> a bit <laughs> very cold. a bit cold, yeah. and then a really a bit hot. Uh, so um, I, I my prior prior to the trip, my wardrobe was pretty flimsy and pathetic, and thank goodness. Um, my now husband had the sense to take me to a 
outdoor shopping kicked me out <laughs> probably or I think I might have died because it got down to <laughs> minus 35 uh, in winter, uh, which is quite hard to think Uh in a clinic, in an unheated clinic at minus 35. And then in summer, it was, um, I think, 45 or 50 degrees wearing a respirator mask in a unconditioned, uh, in a room without any air conditioning. Uh, it was, uh, yeah. it was <laughs> tough. <laughs> yeah. But you go back if you had the chance. Oh, def- uh, yeah, in a flash. The, the treatment process for, for tuberculosis and for drug-resistant tuberculosis, mm. it just sounds horrendous what patients have to go Mm. through you know it can cause deafness um nausea and just the amount of pills that they have to take i mean how how do you feel as a doctor having to having to put a patient through such an awful time again a really challenging situation um and i I was embarrassed as actually as a doctor because you know you don't become a, a doctor to make people sick you don't come become a doctor because you want to do a bit of a bodge job (laughs) you know when you apply for medical school when you're 18 years old you've got these illusions of grandeur about you know I'm going to be the hero to go in and and save the day and um, obviously you you learn to take a reality check on that as you mature as a doctor but uh, when you're when you're um, trying to offer patients with uh, multi-drug resistance or or indeed extensively drug resistant TB the current tools that we have the current drugs that we have it's um it's it's shaming you sort of you you say look i really really think you need to go on these drugs however there's you know in the case of xdrtb there's only a 20 percent chance we're gonna we're gonna cure you um and we're gonna make you desperately sick and miserable for 24 months if you if you do manage to stick to the program um it's it's not what i signed up to Mm. it's not why i became a doctor but unfortunately that's um uh, that's kind of where where we are at the moment. I mean, thank goodness in the last um, few years, really breakthroughs are beginning to be made. The, the World Health Organization uh, guidelines for for um, for drug resistant TB have thankfully just changed to shorter regimens, and we do have now new drugs coming in and repurposed drugs coming in on the pipeline. So there is there is definitely light on the horizon. But uh, the tools I was using three years ago, it was shocking, shameful. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um. It- in your blog post, you, you say you have a recurring dream that you've had since you've become a doctor. Are you, are you still having that dream? Actually, uh, hearing that again, because I, I haven't heard the blog in, or read the blog in a while, um, I've actually, I've forgotten that. Uh, no, I haven't had that dream in a while, interestingly enough. Uh, maybe it'll come back again now. I've been reminded of it. That's yeah. good. It doesn't sound like a very nice dream. No. <laughs> and your your life's changed quite a bit since you got back from Uzbekistan, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Uh, so, yeah, it has... Um, uh, um, Oh, yeah, I'm, I've subsequently got married. I've got a one-year-old daughter, Lexi, and I'm now, uh, now a pregnant expecting twins uh, at the end, uh, towards the end of this year. Um, uh, which is brilliant. Um, I love my daughter. I love uh, I love hanging with the family. But uh, I'll I feel incredibly torn. I think um, I made a deal with my now husband before I went out. I said um, when he asked me to marry him, I said please just let me do MSF once. Just let me get it out of my system so that I'll always re- I've always wanted to do it. And I said I'll always regret it if I don't do it. And I was secretly hoping that I would hate it so I could come back and say, right, I've done that, it's done, and forget about it and close the door. And in fact, um, you know, it was the best, you know, I felt so fulfilled doing it. God, that sounds really cheesy, sorry, but it's true. <laughs> um, it was the best thing I've ever done. If I, if I, um, 
uh, didn't have commitments to come back to, I would have definitely extended my mission um, and then gone on to do further missions. And I really, really hope to go on further missions again in the future when my kiddies uh, are older and I'm in a position to do it. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's still it's still a huge passion of mine, definitely. Yeah. I'm sure your kids would love to see their mum out <laughs> in far-flung place. Cool. Well, thank you so much for Absolute coming Absolute pleasure. In, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. <laughs> So that's it for this episode. If you have any questions about anything you've heard in this podcast, make your way to msf.org.uk slash podcast and leave us a comment. We've also posted links to other fantastic stories written by Emily during her time in Uzbekistan. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. Get in touch with us on Twitter at msf underscore UK, on Instagram at Doctors Without Borders, or on Facebook. Next time on Everyday Emergency. Most definitely, that was... That was the worst day. It still remains kind of a touchstone in my experience. We'll be hearing about Canadian doctor Simon Bryant's most challenging day aboard a search and rescue ship on the Mediterranean Sea. Be sure to tune in. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast. <laughs>